Okay, assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an, another amazing Saturday session. Um, I always say welcome to another amazing Saturday session and now I'm very pleased to say starting next Tuesday I will also be able to say welcome to an amazing Tuesday session. <laughs> so that's the good news is that we are actually ramping up to back to two halakas per week starting this coming Tuesday inshallah for the summertime at least and then we will see what the fall brings because uh, right now it looks like we might have a teaching schedule but it's it's still unclear but I'm just so excited to say we will be together inshallah twice per week um, and that will be very very exciting although we will make sure not to allow uh, Sheikh to rush um, as usual. Um, I have to again um, call attention to yesterday's truly truly incredible um, chuppah and it's really it's nice because um, it's summertime now so Mito our younger son um, sits in the audience and it's really I mean some people have noticed that his presence actually really does make a difference um, because it's a it's a really lovely opportunity for a father to speak to a son whether the son realizes it or not um, but to impart some really important lessons about our faith and we know that our teens are really struggling um, I mean, alhamdulillah, I think, I, you know, you never really quite know where someone is, but definitely for this younger generation, you know, in light of all the bad news, all the darkness, um, you know, certainly he's got friends who are agnostic, if not atheist. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, this is a really lovely opportunity to talk about even how do you conceptualize the existence of God. And, um, you know, and Sheikh has such an amazing way of, you know, pointing things out in a very, um, powerful, philosophical, sometimes just very co commonsensical way, um, and say things that when you think about it, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that is amazing. And yesterday was one of those sessions. It was really, um, I mean, it was deep and philosophical. It talked about space. It talked about, you know, all kinds of things. But um, the, the title of the talk or the chutbah was The Calculus of a Moral Decision and the Tapestry of Morality. And, you know, it's like one of these ones when you sit and you listen, you can literally listen to it like 10 times and you know, work through a lot of what the arguments were saying, but, you know, just you know, to try and summarize, which of course I will not do a good job, but the idea that, you know, we already, you know, we have a gift of consciousness and we already live in a time where there are so many things in our world that we certainly just cannot understand. They're, you know, imperceptible to us. Un, you know, we, we can't, our, our brains are not wired to understand things like time, what came before, what will come after, you know, the birth and death of planets, um, existence, dimensions. I mean, they're just countless things in our world that we accept that we cannot understand. But when it comes to God, we don't apply that same logic, even though it would be very, you know, easy to say, well, you know, you can accept that there's a lot of stuff that you don't understand. Why can't you apply that to God? Because God is obviously much greater than our comprehension. Um, but if you start then thinking about, okay, you know, if you say that you believe in God, then, you know, what does that mean? There are a lot of people who say that they believe in God, but they think of God either as very far away, um, like a God that sort of created you and then stopped caring, like a very amoral, you know, distant, aloof God. Or you could think of God as a secular God, which is a God that sort of just wants you to sort of stroke God's ego by whether or not you you know, uh, adhere to certain technical rituals. So, uh, you know, we certainly know a lot of people who are like, well, you know, if I am praying the right number of, you know, prayers or I'm doing the right sorts of technical ritualistic things, then that's enough. That's what God wants because, you know, that's what God calls for us, you know, to give him. 
but we all also know as Muslims that God doesn't need any of that from us. God doesn't need our prayers. God doesn't need our fasting. And, you know, that's that's for us in our development. Um, or you can believe that God is actually a God that's very invested in you and is very vested in how you live your life and the choices that you make. And so, you know, the title being A Calculus of a Moral Decision, you know, Sheikh took us through a really, you know, interesting case study of like a man in Egypt halfway around the world who made the decision, he's a sheikh, he made the decision to speak out against the injustice of Sisi. And the consequence of that was that he basically, you know, spent the rest of his life in jail and now he's on the verge of death, he's had a stroke. And so the cost is he spent the last 15, 20 years in jail. Why did he do that? Because he believed in this idea of the tapestry of morality, that morality is unbreakable, that we are all connected, that we have to speak out for justice. And if you take God out of this equation, if you are a believer and you either think there, there is you know, a secular God or you've evicted God, as, as Sheikh said, um, and God is very aloof, then you know, making a moral calculation about how you live your life then becomes a matter of ego and a matter of preference, not a matter of something that you do for a moral reason. Um, and so, you know, it's like he kind of walks us through the different, you know, scenarios. If you are a believer, you know, if, or if you don't believe in God, you know, if you live in a world where God is just not a part of your life, then you're left making a really difficult moral calculation based on your ego. But if you do believe in God and you do believe that God is vested in the decisions that you make and that you are supposed to stand up for justice, then you know that makes your moral calculus a lot clearer and a lot more direct. And also, you know, on the final day when you meet God and God says, okay, let me compare you to the man who basically spoke out against injustice and lost his life versus you who made a decision on, you know, your moral calculus, which was based on, you know, what did you sacrifice? What did you give up? Did you just give up, you know, your fun? Did you give up your, you know, your comforts? Or did you not give up anything at all? You know, and you just did your prayers and you did, you know, or you maybe you didn't. How does that stack up? And if you don't have more a moral calculus, then this world really doesn't make sense. Then it means that you can do whatever you want and on the final day, you know, it doesn't matter the decisions that you made. And as Muslims, you know, we we don't believe that obviously. But I think for us as, as Muslims, we do have to interrogate, you know, when we say we believe, as we've been learning in these halakas, what does that really mean? You know, what are we willing to sacrifice? Do we believe in the tapestry of, you know, of morality, you know, for people across the world? Does that mean that we should care that a man halfway around the world, you know, stood up for some for injustice? Should we care about him or should we not care about him? So, I mean, the, you know, this was just a very superficial treatment of what Sheikh said. He What he said was really deep, really powerful, um, and definitely, you know, amazing. So, um, you know, I really encourage people to watch it um, or, you know, read the summary um, next week in the weekly email or maybe read, a, read it with Prophet's Pulpit Volume 2 or 3, <laughs> which will come out eventually, inshallah. But it was really one of these um, really powerful khutbahs that just makes you think about, you know, your 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 conception of God um, and, you know, what that means for you in your, your life. And the happy report card we got was that Mido actually did make his way to Sheikh and say he really liked it. So that's always its own happiness. Um, so alhamdulillah for that. And then also the other thing that he pointed out and talked about yesterday, which I think is really important for us to be aware about, is this what's been happening with now this new way of applying to go to Hajj. I mean, we've talked obviously a lot about, you know, that whole issue of supporting, um, you know, the Saudis and, and all of that um, with our money by going to Hajj. Um, now, if people don't know, um, the Saudis have made it so that if you want to go to Hajj, you have to apply and it has to be handled through a Saudi agency and they have actually 
um, contracted this whole process to um, a, you know a group that has deep ties to the Modi anti you know the the um, Hindu nationalist government to Israel to UAE and to the Saudis and so if you want to buy your ticket to Hajj you have to share all of your information with this very suspect group of people so if you think about the security implications of that you know that is already extremely extremely alarming so I would encourage you to you know listen to that look into that and you know and consider that because um, Clearly, um, that's a huge issue of injustice in our faith. Um, and lastly, I just thought it was sort of very interesting to kind of go back and, you know, we've, we've hit this incredible milestone of now on our 80th surah. And so that kind of got me curious to go back and count, like, you know, how get some statistics here. So I thought I would just sort of share this. Um, so in our project Illumin Journey, which is now coming up on two years, um, we are on our 80th surah. Um, and we, in Project Illumin altogether, um, the number of halakas we've done, so as you know, you know, some surahs have taken more than one halakha, some have gone up to 12, for example, Surah Baqarah. So the total Project Illumin halakas that we've held is 123. Um, in terms of overall halakas we've done just as the Suli Institute, um, from the founding back at the end of 2017, we've done 156 halakas. And if you just count the number of virtual khutbahs that we've done since January of 2019, that's 166 khutbahs. And so these are pretty incredible numbers. Um, we've only published so far 22 in the first edition of Prophet's Pulpit, so we have a very healthy inventory of khutbahs, and that doesn't even count the khutbahs that we did, or that Sheikh did before Usuli. So um, we have a lot of good content to keep Joe busy, and inshallah, hopefully create a lot of good books to come in, in the future. Um, so the 123 halakhas includes today. So um, alhamdulillah, and then with that, I also want to say that we have 22 surahs um, that have not been adopted through the adopt a surah um, program and some of them are the really amazing khutbahs that we've just recently done so surah al-nur that we're into now has not been adopted um, also recently as you know we did um, uh, hashr and munafikun but you know just to give you some let me read these three al-hajj which i'm really looking forward to especially since you know sheikh's talking about hajj and obviously hajj now is going to be very interesting um, you know, situation. I'm really dying to know what that surah will reveal to us. Um, al Furqan, Al Shuara, um, Al Ankabut, Al Sajda, Al Sabah, Fatr, Al Safat, Ghafir, Fusilat, Al Shura, Al Zukruf, Al Duhan, Al Hujurat, Kaf, Al Dariyat, Al Tur, and Al Hashr, Al Munafikun, and Al Tagabun. So these are incredible surahs to um, adopt. So please uh, consider that and join us in this incredible um, effort to publish the entire um, tafsir, which um, Joe and his team is working hard on and will be an amazing contribution, inshallah. So with that, um, thank you for joining us. I'm so excited for another session to continue, Surah Al-Nur. And, um, and then also remember, uh, we will also see you next Tuesday, inshallah. Okay. وسبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين
Uh, okay. Um, so, inshallah, we continue on with Surah Al-Nur. As we already talked about that, there there is a historical occasion that um, that b b triggers or that becomes the um, that becomes the lo the locus, the 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 space for revealing Surah Al-Nur. But whenever we deal with the historical context of any Quran, any of the any Quranic revelation, the very of necessity that the very logic that we are dealing with divine speech. I mean, even if it wasn't divine speech, even if it was the speech of some uh, very wise author, you know, the, always the question is. Why does an author choose to speak about a historical occasion? What is it about whatever unfolded historically that was worth addressing? And that same methodological question is, of course, far more pressing and far more pertinent when we are dealing with divine speech. And paying careful attention to the totality of the message of the demonstrative example, it is mor morality can be conveyed to us as human beings through abstract precepts, or morality can be conveyed to us as human beings through demonstrative examples. And if morality is conveyed to us through demonstrative examples, that always begs the question of, well, what precepts do these demonstrative examples affirm or confirm or elucidate or it, in, in otherwise um, illuminate. And this is very important for Surah Al-Nur because as we will see inshallah that it is, there is a central reason that the revelation about the nature or about light and darkness is at the heart of the surah. 
And as we said, that we are still in terms of the unfolding of the history of Medina, a situation where the external front, the, 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 the front of uh, external challenges and external enemy, enemies is um, highly active, to put it mildly. There is a great deal of stress and a great deal of pressure and a great deal of challenge to Muslims in terms of upholding and maintaining and navigating through external threats and external challenges that confront them. But as we will see, inshallah, that core to Surah Al-Nur, that your external, your ability to confront your external challenges is only as good as the strength of your internal front that and you know I'm, I'm skipping a little bit ahead but I think it's it's important to to for us to systematically go through this without losing any of the parts that in the same way that there is a dynamic to the to the delivery of light light is a truth in of itself light reveals but is not revealed the nature of light is how do i put it the nature of light is inherent and indivisible and the nature of light is that it reveals but it itself is not revealed it allows us to perceive it allows us to put put it differently to be enlightened But it's incoherent to speak about the enlightenment of light. Whatever characteristics light has, they're ultimate in and of themselves. But light itself, like the luminosity of, as we will come to inshallah, that the the luminosity of a thing a like a pure oil that is luminous by itself 
without even fire. Or the luminosity of fire itself. While darkness doesn't change any of its truth. In other words, it's not corruptible. It is true because it's true. Because it is what it is. However, it needs instrumentalities that can further reflect and disseminate the light. So, as we go through this, it's important to understand that even if you have the truth, but that truth is not delivered through what in Surah Al-Nur is described as the proper niche, the proper lamp, the proper glass, then that light could be luminous and could be a truth truth forever drawing the seeker to it, but it is surrounded by darkness and its ability to shine and achieve its potential is limited. It's not limited because of any defect in its inherent quality but it is limited because of the failures of instrumentalities that engage that luminous origin. So, you have a society, and this society is under extreme pressure, and we've already seen manifestations of that extreme pressure in the surah we've talked about. But Surah Al-Nur will even say more about that, inshallah, as we'll see. But pressure, the nature of pressure, does something to human beings. Human beings, when challenged, when challenged, they can be the better versions of themselves and rise to the occasion and meet that challenge by, in the language of Surah Al-Nur, by being better reflections of the light. Or, Feeling challenged, human beings can distract themselves and project their troubles onto one another. So, and, and this, this we, we see this repeatedly throughout human history, right? That societies that have external challenges, they either come together and either 
work through whatever internal challenges they confront in, in a way that affirms their solidarity. In other words, brings them closer together. And they meet the external challenge. Or instead, they do, they act like crabs in a barrel. They start snipping at each other and taking out their frustrations upon one another. And especially when you have the types of challenges that are extremely human, the, the challenges of refugees, challenges of an indigenous population, challenges of poverty, challenges of instability, uh, you know, all the temptations are there. All the temptations are there for the darkness to convince human beings not to be the type of instrumentality that bears the light and augments the light and reflects the light further. So, and this is, so, and this is brilliantly demonstrated in Hadith al-Ifq. A simple incident after a victory. But this victory in itself presented a moral challenge. Remember that Banu al-Mustalik, the tribe that was defeated, initially what was done was following the customs of war was that Banu al-Mustalik were, were captured for either to be ransomed or to be maintained as captives of war, in other words, sold into slavery. What the moral challenge came when the prophet married Juwairiyah. Because now, when the prophet married this woman, and the prophet set her free and married her, the entire community was presented with a moral challenge. Now, Banu Mustalik according to the customs of the age, that if you marry into a tribe, then that tribe becomes part of your, uh, um, part of your mawali, meaning that they are part of what counts as uh, your honor, your pride, your clan, your identity. And According to Arab customs, it is um, unbecoming, it is a dishonor for people to ransom the clan that is now related to the Prophet, to ransom or enslave the clan that is now related to the Prophet. 
the Prophet put people, والسلام, confronted them with immoral challenge by marrying, by freeing and marrying Jawairiya. Because now, are you going to, in fact, treat those who are related to the Prophet through marriage uh, in an unbecoming, undignified way? And the Sira tells us, it doesn't tell us you know, exactly who did or didn't, but it tells us that the reaction of the either all or the vast majority was in fact to respond in the dignified Arab way by releasing whatever captives they were holding from Banu al-Mustalaq. But you pause there for a second and understand the historical moment for what it is. If you are someone who grew up in this culture, if you are a migrant and you know, so finally, after the, 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 what happened at Uhud, and with all the poverty and all the economic challenges, now finally, you, it's something, you've gained something in your hand. If you are among the Ansar, with all the economic sacrifices, and, e and even the economic sacrifice with Banu Nadir and, and that we talked about in Surah Al-Anfal and Surah Al-Hash. Now the Prophet ﷺ goes and does something that further denies you profit, to put it very bluntly and simply. You know, reading it from our modern eyes, we, we sit there and say, ah, oh, you just married Jawairi, uh, you know, what's a big deal? No, it was a very big deal if you understand the, the customs of the age that effectively he put people in a situation that if they didn't reciprocate by doing the right thing, according to the standards of the age, it is as if they suppress the light. If they do, if they do the beautiful thing, which is, which is release the captives, then they've reflected and augmented the light. So, Banu Mustalak was a victory, yes. And there was a gain from it, but that gain was mixed with a sacrifice and with the knowledge that, well, the marriage and the release of captives would mean that there will be 
most of Badu Mustalak, according to the customs and habits, it would be entirely expected that most of Badu Mustalak would, would convert to Islam. Now their alliance would shift from Mecca to Medina. And when they see that the heads of their tribes have become Muslim, then, you know, there might be strays here and there, people who refuse to convert and leave Medina and, and uh, you know, go elsewhere. But you know that the majority, that's what's going to happen. But that's in itself, okay, well, so now you've got Banu Mustalik who have been released as captives, no ransom money, which is something that is is a, a is received, but now they convert to Islam and they many of them remain in Medina, further putting pressure, economic pressure on Medina. So in this context, and with the tension about Quraysh, and again, as I said, that we'll, we'll come to this issue of, of what Surah Al-Nur itself says about the, the um, emotional pressure that Muslims were confronting. Um, and the role of the munafiqun and et cetera, et cetera, the incident with Aisha takes place. And of course, as you expect, that this is an opportunity for the opposition camp to pounce. But it is also an, oppor an opportunity for people who, you know, they don't have social media to to distract themselves and spew their toxic venom on social media as people do today, but they can spew their toxic venom in social interactions with one another. And we get little glimpses of that in some of the riwayat um, let's see which one shall I? I didn't, I didn't mention the riwayat last halaqa, but when I thought about it, I thought that it is necessary um, to convey a better sense of... Um, so, for instance, Let's Okay, so for instance, you get narratives like that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari 
in one of these uh, narratives, just talking to his wife, and he says, Haven't you heard what is being said about Aisha? Um, and his wife reportedly answers him by saying, if, if you were in Safwan's place, and remember Safwan is the man who gave Aisha uh, a ride, would you have betrayed the Prophet And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari responds, no. And if I was in Aisha's place, I wouldn't have betrayed the, the Prophet and then the wife comments on this and says, Fa'aisha khayrun minni wa Safwan khayrun mink. And Aisha is better than me and Safwan is better than you. So it is not possible that they've betrayed the Prophet ﷺ. Um, in, in another version of such reports, you have, it is the wife of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, who initiates the conversation. And the version is identical, but from a wife's perspective. So in this version, the wife comes and says, Have you heard what people are saying about Aisha? And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari reportedly says, yes. Uh, but he says, But this, these are all lies. And then he explains to his wife by saying, Would you have done what people are saying Aisha did? And she says, La wallah, I wouldn't have done it. And then he responds, Faqal, Aisha khayrun mink. Subhanallah, has a buhtad. And Aisha, it, it, then Aisha is better than you. So it is not possible that Aisha did what they say um, that she's done. When you see narratives like this, and especially that they're narrated sometimes from the, from the, the husband is the one that initiates the conversation, and sometimes the, the wife is the one that initiates the conversation. These narratives are a prototype of the what would ideally take place among people who are thinking clearly about things that well Safwan is a man of good moral character Aisha is a woman of good moral character how can you possibly imagine that they would betray the Prophet and Safwan is is better than most of than, than the people who are criticizing him? Aisha is better than the people who are criticizing her. So how can you possibly believe these rumors? Now did this mean that this incident actually took place? Did this conversation take place between Abu Ayyub and his wife? Allahu alam, but it doesn't matter. It's a prototype in historical narrative that 
is imagining what the morally upright, the way that would reason through things, medieval historical narrative has a particular way of preserving the unfolding of historical events. And it often does it packaged in prototypes, in a a certain performance of narrative. So, but the fact of the matter is, is that the reason that Hadith al-If becomes a serious incident is not just because the typical munafiqoon, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the opposition class that we are told withdrew from Uhud um, and even goes as far as, as making a, a treacherous alliance and committing treason it would be easy to dismiss the the rumor mills from the munafiqun and you would hardly find either Aisha or the Prophet والسلام, uh, deeply troubled by this or in crisis mode by this. If darkness, if you expect darkness from darkness, you're not surprised that there is darkness. What hurts, or what the pincher is, and when it comes from when it comes from quarters, of course, I mean, the, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Hassan uh, Ibn Sabit. Um, because I, I think that, well, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll come to it. But when it comes to people like Zayd bin Rafa'a or um, Mustah bin Athatha, you know, people like that who are, were never part of the hypocrites. But I think the historical record, it would not have been what it was as an incident and preserved as hadith if, if, if it was just the hypocrites and Zayd ibn Rafa'a or Mustah and his wife, Mihna, uh, it is clear that it was uh, more widespread than that. And But you ask yourself, everyone understood that Safwan is not the type of person that would betray the Prophet In fact, Safwan had a very important job and a dangerous job and that is his job was to actually be, when, when you went out to battle, you always assigned people that would bring up the rear of the army. They would stay behind 
And as the army moves, they are scouting the, the, the rear of the army to make sure that no one comes and attacks the army from behind. Those scouts play a very critical, they have to be extremely trustworthy because if they're bought out or if they betray you, um, that could be the end of your entire military campaign. So Safwan, we know that chosen for that task, that he's extremely trustworthy. But furthermore, that those people are also often a high casualty because they're easily targeted for if, if, a, if, an, if an army loses a battle, one way to avenge your loss is to see who are the, 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 the scouts at the rear of the army and assassinate them or abduct them. And Aisha was already known as a, a you know, she's you know, a, a, the daughter of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, the, it was known their status to the Prophet so that logic that we see in the riwayah of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and his wife that logic of well you know Safwan is better than me uh, or better than you and Aisha is better than me and so how could anyone believe that as I said that's sort of like the prototype ideal logic that one would follow but why was hadith spread despite the obvious logic that could be followed? And the answer is because this is a human society. And when a human society is under an enormous amount of pressure, what often happens is that people turn against one another exactly what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala points our attention to that maybe you can't question the morality of your leader. Maybe you can't even question the wisdom of the decisions. You, you can't, but, you, but what starts chipping away at the moral fiber of the society is acts of darkness like this, where you start saying, yeah, but, you know, he can't control his wife. You know, look, you know, he, he, why can't he put his house in order? You can thoroughly imagine how that could become the crack from which the entire moral enterprise caves in and falls. When people, yeah, you're, if you're saying this about Aisha today, well, tomorrow you're going to be saying it about 
if you're backbiting about the honor of Aisha and Safwan today, well, tomorrow you're going to be criticizing the, you know, t talking about people in disparaging ways about in once you surrender to the darkness, darkness is infectious because it is a, a, a failure in the more in the soul of a human being. It is the, the corruption, the, the afan, the, um, um, the, well, the toxicity is easily bruised inside the soul and is easily infectious, especially when human beings are under stress. So, it is remarkable that Surah An-Nur starts out by saying, as a principle, God doesn't tolerate zina. As a principle, if you're talking about al-fahisha, if you're talking about zina, well, God doesn't tolerate it. So this is not about being soft on sexual improprieties. But know that just because you think or you claim that you are, the people who were talking about Aisha, they weren't saying we're evil people, let's talk about Aisha. They were saying, we're defending the honor of the community. We are standing up for, you know, proper behavior. What is this? As we said last time, you know, going to look for a necklace and then, you know, going to the bathroom and without telling anyone and then dropping her necklace and not telling anyone and then, you know, and then someone comes and she, she takes her, instead of just waiting until the army comes. And of course, you can imagine when someone says, oh, you know, would you have done this? The, these, again, prototype anecdotal narratives. Would you have done this? Meaning what? Because there were people at the time who were saying, women who were saying, if I was in Aisha's place, I would have never accepted a ride with a man. I would have waited until the army discovers that I'm not there and come. And a proper moral woman, if the risk is that she be killed, abducted in the desert, and killed, so be it, but not not take a ride with a foreign man. That that holier that, that type of why is it significant? Because Allah knows that the claim of well this discourse this 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 backbiting is necessary for us to be vigilant against promiscuity and vigilant against loose behavior. And vigilant, and it's as if Allah is saying, Yes, you're right. Zina is horrible. Zina deserves a hundred lashes. But, and the but is very important. In the same way that the luminous 
can only be further illuminated by the proper tools. Morality can only be served through the proper mechanisms. And the proper mechanisms in this case is bring four witnesses. If you don't have four witnesses, then you shut up. It doesn't mean, and the lesson here is you people just pass because as as a as a as a lawyer, as a as a legal scholar, it blows my mind because I know how long it takes legal sociology to come to the point of saying the process is often as important, if not more important, than the principle. And yet the Quran presents it to us in such a seamless fashion. If you're not paying attention, you miss it. Or if you're not sufficiently educated in the epistemology of your age, you miss it. But that's why it starts by the law against dinner. Okay, 100 lashes. But it is, and, and you'll see then when Allah then ref, talks about those who love for fahisha to spread, when Allah says this, if I if I'll jump just jump ahead a little bit, look, I would say um, yeah. It is one of the remarkable Allah comes and talks about those who love for fahisha. Fahisha is what is immoral conduct. But Allah uses it by turning the tables. Because here what Allah talks about, when Allah says those who love for a fahisha to spread, Allah is referring to those who engaged in the gossip. Well, those who engaged in the gossip were claiming that the reason they were engaging in the gossip is because they hate fahisha. Do, do you see? So Allah comes and turns the table on them and says, you know what? It is you through by the unfairness of your process by by giving in to your impulses by the failure to follow the correct dynamics for a proper accusation if in fact you have the grounds for a proper accusation it is you who are spreading fahisha now I talked about this last halakha, but I didn't talk about it in the context of somewhat of a prototype. And that is, um,
Um, what was his name? Um, come to me in a second, inshallah. Yeah, Asim bin Adi. Asim bin Adi al-Ansari. So we, we know that Asim bin Adi al-Ansari, this is the man that reportedly goes to the Prophet and says that, okay, what is this? If we, if I accuse my wife, if, if I see my wife doing something wrong and I go get four witnesses, by the time I get four witnesses, she'll be done. And if I accuse her, you're going to flog me. And if I react and kill her, you're going to execute me. So, and as the narrative goes, if you remember from last halaqa, that then Asim bin Adil Ansari, reportedly, um, the next day meets Hilal bin Umayyah. And Hilal bin Umayyah says, what's going on, um, Asim? Why do you look so troubled? And he says, Allah has tested me in, you know, I was just asking the Prophet about what if I find a man with my wife? Well, guess what? Right after, just yesterday, after I asked the Prophet, I found um, Sharik, Sharik bin Sahma, Sharik bin Sahma on top of my wife, naked. And Allah has truly tested me by the caring of what I was asking about. And as I said last halaqa, that this was supposed to be the occasion for the revelation of the process of li'an, that when a husband accuses a wife or vice versa. Now, did Asim bin Adil Ansari really find Sharik bin Sahma on top of his wife, naked. In some narratives, it's in, in a bedroom. In other narratives, in a, it's in an open field. Uh, um, um, anyway, um, maybe. I mean, it's possible. But the way that the narrative is structured is another prototype for a moral point. What is fascinating about this narrative is that it explicitly says that the, the presents the predicament. I go get four witnesses, they'll be done. I accuse, I'll be punished. If I kill, I will be executed. If I commit an honor killing, in other words, I will be in turn punished and be executed for the killing. The narrative itself underscores the critical importance of process even if even if the moral cause what's more than finding your 
spouse cheating on you, catching your spouse cheating on you. But even then, the, 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 the way that the many different versions to this narrative is basically to underscore the point that in the same way that you need four witnesses for zina, just because you're married and just because you even catch your spouse in the act, there is still a process that you go through. It's, it's still, if you go around talking about how my wife cheats on me and you don't comply with the process, you are among those who 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 wants al wants immorality to spread. This is a remarkable part about Surah Al-Nur is that it it comes in and it starts out by a moral condemnation and a penalty for zina, but then takes you from there and say, but if you don't have the proper process, then the, 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 the inability to comply by the process is in itself an immoral act. It's like, it's di- like dissecting the nature of darkness, not the nature of light, but the nature of darkness itself. That how people can claim that they want to do the right thing or that they're defending what is, you know, what is morally upright. But if you don't do it in a moral way, then in fact what you've done is you've helped darkness. You haven't helped light. And we have, why at this point? Well, the moral quality of this ummah is what will enable it to withstand and wither the external challenges. It is as if Allah is saying, to put it very simply in Surah Al-Nur, knowing how to honor modesty in your society, knowing how to honor privacy in your society, what is modesty and privacy? and the integrity of the family. Uh, what, what, is, what is all of that about? Dignity. Quite simply, dignity. As we will see in Surah An-Nur, as we talk about the, the you know, I, I was, one of the Islamophobic books that I wasted my time with was mocking the, uh, the, the verses uh, in, the, in Surah An-Nur that, you know, you can eat in, you can you can dine in each other's homes. You can eat from. Of course, they they it's because they they, they ignore or they don't understand the, the 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 moral point behind this discourse in Surah An-Nur, as we will see. 
privacy and dignity, dignity of families, the dignity of individuals, and dignity and honor in society as a whole. I would submit to you that, the, that and we'll see, and we'll talk about this further. I'm, I'm speak, skipping ahead because I think it helps to know where I'm going with this. That the challenge that Allah presents us in Surah An-Nur, the challenge is nothing less than how I, this message from God is light. But it is not, the, the fact that you have that light in your midst is not sufficient. How are you going to translate that light into something that forces the darkness to retreat in your lived contingencies, in your lived context? And core to maintaining the moral quality of your society and furthering the light is to learn how to protect and honor each other's privacies and the dignity that you owe that you you owe to each other because when, when, when I don't talk about your wife or your sister or your mother, what is that about? It is about your, her dignity and the, your dignity and the dignity of your family. And when I honor the dignity of your family, the expectation is that you will reciprocate in kind by honoring the dignity of my family. If the, that unspoken covenant between us, that unspoken trust between us, is that if today you are speaking about me, deprecating me, degrading me, not respecting my dignity, not respecting my privacies, and I reciprocate in kind, then to what extent can we talk about a society in which the light of God is pervasive? It's, it's all quite logical. I will say, I will think of whether I should leave it till the end or whether I even should say it at all because, you know, with Muslims, modern Muslims, you... you you learn to censor yourself. But since I, I I've don't want anything from this world anymore and don't expect anything and don't even care about approval or, you know, I'll say it. The way I understand Surah Al-Nur is that the point is not to establish a hundred lashes for zina. The point to, is to tell us if zina exists in the way where 
it is manifested openly before Allah set as four witnesses, then it must be punished. In my view, the mention of jald in Quran is a mention of a mechanism of punishment that existed at the age in which the Quran was revealed. So in my view, and Allahu A'lam, God knows best, that if I punish, the, the, the Allah is underscoring that you, might, you should punish zina, and especially zina that is committed either through admission or openly in front of witnesses. So the idea that you have a society that doesn't punish zina is objectionable from Surah An-Nur and of course the Quran generally. But that the point is not the jeld. The point is an ilam to, and, and in fact, did I write it? Hold on. Um, yeah, in in books of fiqh, they say, فَلَا يَرْفَعَ يَدُهُ حَتَّى يُرَى إِبْطُهُ وَلَا يُخَفِّفْ فِيهِ فيه جدا بل يتوسط بحيث يؤلمه ولا يضره ولا يضره. So what they're saying is that if when you're when you're flogging that you shouldn't raise your hand so that your armpit is seen, meaning that you shouldn't strike very hard. You you strike in a way so that the the key here is an ilam that you you hurt but you don't harm. Hurt and not harm is the point that the punishment so if we if we have I mean and this is again I'm just speculating if we have some day where they you know invent a shot that you inject someone with a shot that causes pain equal to a hundred lashes but it's not a hundred lashes but it causes pain equal to a hundred lashes and it has the qualities of shaming as well because Allah says that there should be witnesses. So the shaming is a part of the punishment. Why not? There is nothing in the Quranic revelation that says that Allah is, sees jeld as itself a divine revelation. But the punishment is the divine revelation. Is haps adequate? Well, it depends. There are forms of haps in the modern age that only corrupt the criminal further. That's highly inadequate. When you you know, imagine if you punish someone for zina who's eighteen years old or some young kid. 20-something years old, and you throw them in prison with a bunch of criminals where they come out far worse than they've entered. 
modern prisons, including prisons in Muslim countries, um, it is a very common experience for young convicts to go to prison and be sexually assaulted. That is, and to pretend as human rights advocates in the modern age do, to pretend that, oh, we're so offended by a uh, hundred lashes, but we don't have a problem with sending two people to prison where they get raped, is, 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 is hypocrisy and repulsive. A loss punishment doesn't include getting raped. So if you're going to set, tell me I'm going to send people to prison instead of put, hitting them a hundred lashes, uh, but you can't make your prison safe, or you can't people go to prison and come out worse criminals, then the answer is clearly no. I wish Muslims would think in terms of the moral quality of the act, not the simple physical performance of the act. I've, unfortunately, maybe I've read too much about prisons, but, and, and prisons in the West and, 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 You know, some people, think, you know, it's nearly taboo in a lot of Muslim countries to talk about what happens in prisons. But I can tell you that there, there I mean, in prisons, in some prisons in Egypt, for instance, um, I would rather receive a thousand lashes then spend a year in one of these prisons because what is taken away from you is all semblance of human dignity over humanity anyway enough said so Furthermore, I think, I mean, there, there, there is, a, in Islamic jurisprudence, there's a, a big debate, well, you know, four witnesses, what does that mean? I think that Shia zina, so for, in my, Allah alam, this is my, my opinion, and Allah knows best, but some, I've, I wish it was not true, but I, I've encountered this through the human trafficking field and then discovered that, that there are in Muslim countries, countries including countries like Egypt and Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria and Bangladesh and Malaysia and there are most there are people who perform who fornicate on screen for the world to see pornographic sites in other words the fact that this this type of behavior can go without punishment 
And as some, as Harishiyuch say, well, you, you know, it, it, no, it, it must be witnessed directly, not on film or not on camera, is nonsense, in my opinion. I mean, the, the whole point is Allah underscoring that, that fornication and adultery can never become normalized behavior. That it shouldn't be normalized behavior, but that but it is you you don't punish it through rumors and innuendos or even circumstantial evidence. What you are punishing is the type of in-your-face, open act of sexual defiance in Muslim societies. Of course, I'm not talking about you know non-Muslim societies because that's these laws only apply or are supposed to apply to Muslim societies. Um, there, there's something that I I blanked out on. Um, oh, yeah, this is also a bit of a now notice. We have so many reports that at the time that Surah Al-Nur is revealed, you remember last halakha I talked to you about the second verse of Surah Al-Nur and the narratives about how there were, there were women who were basically professional prostitutes and how some of the migrants thought that they would marry these women so that they can help them financially, basically support so that because, because they wanting to come out of poverty, that they would marry and that, that the opinion of some, um, that the, the, the reason for the, the, the second ayah is to say that no, you shouldn't marry these women. <clears throat> but notice, and this is not just from Surah An-Nur, but from an, an honest reading of the seerah, what strikes you is the existence of places of ill repute well into Khilafat Umar ibn al-Khattab. These were places where advertised their profession as engaging in haram. But we don't have a single narrative of any of the people who worked in these homes of being of ill repute being dragged out and flogged or stoned, for instance. Eventually, according to some narrative during Khilafat Umar, that they are exiled, they are they're banished from um, from at least Mecca and Medina into. Uh, 
they, they depending on the reports whether they go to Yemen or go to Bahrain or or go to Sham depend depends on who you're reading but I mean it's and it probably all of them are true that some of them went to Yemen some of them went to Bahrain some of them went to Sham some of them went, went to Egypt especially according to these narratives that they go to Said uh, southern Egypt uh, but that's I mean Again, further underscoring that it is not the it is not um, that that punishment is not carried out by rumors and innuendos or, or heresy evidence or that when the Quran said four witnesses. It meant four witnesses. And unless you're going to bring four witnesses, then we don't get into the punishment of Jant or the or what is equivalent to it in in my opinion. Allah Alam. Allah knows best. Um okay. All of this, and we haven't really moved from the verses that we covered already last halakha. Um, okay. If you guys were attended last halakha, you'd know that all of this is in the realm of... Um, and since I know if I rush, I'll be caught <laughs> and publicly shamed. For daring, um, so let me <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this that is that. And I, but in case I did, just I, I think I mentioned I can't remember that Zuhari and Said ibn al Musayyab and among the very early jurists and Ibn Abi Layla, uh, they all held a position that didn't survive in Islamic jurisprudence, that if you slander, whether you slander a Muslim or non-Muslim, it doesn't matter. That even if you slander a non-Muslim, even a kafir, um, even a kafir that you'd still get punished because according to them a kafir can be a muhassan that that school of thought didn't survive in islamic jurisprudence and there are many doctrines in islamic jurisprudence that ultimately don't survive um post uh imam shafi and imam ahmad ibn hanbal um who who of course had Anyway, had an impact on the, the trajectory of Islamic jurisprudence in certain ways. Um, yeah. Okay. So before I, I move on, one uh, final point, still within the last, uh, within the first ten verses of Surah An-Nur. Um, I said that 
there are reports that after the revelation of Surah An-Nur, that the Prophet ﷺ punishes with 80 lashes Mustah, um, Hassan ibn Thabit, and Mustah's wife, Himna. And then there are reports that no, those who were punished were Mustah and his wife, Himna, but not Hassan ibn Sabit. And there are reports that he didn't punish any of them, that no one was flogged. Um, what I find uh, troubling is so many sources say the sources that say that in fact there were people who were flogged that Abdullah ibn Ubay and his camp were not punished and typically they tell you that the reason Abdullah ibn Ubay was not punished and his camp was not punished although remember Abdullah ibn Ubay and his camp were ostensibly Muslims they said they were Muslims they insisted they were Muslims is they tell you that basically for political reasons because if if the Prophet would have flogged Abdullah ibn Ubay um, that that would have led to political ramifications and unfortunately because of Ahlul Hadith throwing around these reports. Later on, we find in the field of Siyasa Sharia, despite what we know about the Prophet's meticulous insistence on standards of justice, and that if a member of his family would commit a crime, he would punish the member of his family, that Later on, later centuries, the opinion develops that if the imam sees that it is in the best interest of the ummah not to punish the influential people, the imam may refrain from doing so. So by that logic, we end up defeating the entire moral edifice of justice. The imam may punish those who are powerless because there are no political consequences to punishing them, but may exempt the politically powerful from punishment on, uh, relying on the precedent of Abdullah ibn Ubay and supposedly the failure of the Prophet to punish him, and they tell you, well, because the siyasa sharia, you know, this is an example of how a lack of a moral compass in furthering narratives, narratives that when you, and I'll, I'll comment on this in, just in, in one second, but the lack of a moral compass in, in 
غربلت الاحاديث in, 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 in analyzing traditions could lead to a complete undoing of the more because what what do we have we have then we come to the modern age where muftis of a sultan like the current mufti of egypt when um and th this is a real example right so many young men were sentenced to death and executed in egypt egypt is second to saudi arabia first in the number of executions in the world is china after china is saudi arabia after saudi arabia is egypt and people are executed in egypt for being a part of a conspiracy so you know where when this is confessions obtained through torture and so the, you know i'm not even giving any credence or any legitimacy to these convictions but you know a a, a a single police officer is killed uh, in in the context of events that took place in during the revolution, and lo and behold, a hundred people are sentenced, ten of them to death, and ninety of them to prison. And the evidence, of course, is all obtained through torture and everything. But what happens is that. An influential, powerful fellow in Egypt murdered a, his lover, who was convicted of that murder, and sentenced to death. The president of Egypt pardoned that murderer, first commuted his death sentence, and then pardoned him altogether. There is another famous... Egyptian um, criminal who's allegedly killed many people, uh, um, a, a drug lord. Again, the, the president of Egypt pardoned him while he failed to pardon any of the people who were convicted in political events. And as a result, tens and tens of Egyptians were put to death. The Mufti comes along and says, well, you know, the Prophet failed to punish Abdullah ibn Ubay because of the political replications. So it's entirely halal for the ruler to discriminate between the politically influential and... And I just don't have enough contempt to articulate to this type of opportunistic, immoral. This is the undoing of our religion. This is the destruction of our Quran. But it all originally, I spent so much time looking into this report and exactly as I expected, all the transmission, all the, 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 the major figures in the transmission of this report that Abdullah Ubay was exempt, exempted because of the because of the, the Prophet ﷺ didn't want to alienate the powerful uh, are Nawasim, people who are allied to the Amawids and who were basically 
apologists for Emmawid power and the fact that the Emmawids killed companions of the Prophet and killed people from Ali al-Bayt. And they wanted to say, well, you know, things like that happen in politics. You know, it's not a, it's okay. Politics requires that. And when you find these same figures who, for instance, defended the killing, the execution of Hajar ibn Uday, companion of the Prophet by the Amwans and defended the execution. And you find that these are the same people who are telling us that Abdullah ibn Ubay was exempted from punishment. How can you, how can you accept that? Part of dealing with historical narratives is to have a moral compass that weighs is this consistent with what we other not otherwise know about the morality of the Prophet and especially when you see a clear political motive that is acts that flows in support of narratives of political expedience rather than ethical uprightness. Is this clear? Okay. So it, I would be remiss to not mention that, especially considering how much time it took me to go through all the narratives of the exemption of Abdullah ibn Ubay, but the punishment of otherwise people, even the claim is even Hassan ibn Thabit. Although I have to tell you, I don't believe Hassan ibn Thabit was, was, uh, was punished in, in Hadith al-Ifq. And I think that he, he I, I accept the authenticity of his famous poem, Apologizing to Aisha, uh, for, for and he says in his poem that I have never accused you, but I I fell prey to listening to those who accused you. Anyway, that's you know the the, the poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit. Um, okay. Um, Let's take a three-minute break and then move beyond verse 10, <laughs> which is where we left last halaqa. What time is it? How much time was I, have I spent? It's almost eight. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, want, I want to move on, but... Don't rush. I keep, um, you know, I keep hearing Grace's voice in my ear. Don't rush. Don't rush. Okay. <laughs> okay. Three minutes. Wait. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, so um, 
We are now at 11. Inna alladhina ja'u bil-ifk usbatun minkum. La tahsabuhu sharran lakum bal huwa khayrun lakum. Dukulli imri'in minhum maktasab min ifk. Walladhina tawallahu kibra. Walladhi tawallahu kibra minhum lahu azabun azim. لولا إذ سمعتموه ظن المؤمنون والمؤمنات بأنفسهم خيرا وقالوا هذا إفك مبين لولا جاءوا عليه بأربعة شهداء فإذا لم يأتوا بالشهداء فأولئك عند الله هم الكاذبون We can also include 14 So this is from 11 to 14. ولولا فضل الله عليكم ورحمته في الدنيا والآخرة لما لمسكم فيما أفضتم فيه عذاب عظيم. So there are this Muhammad Asad's translation. Osba just to um, he translates it as verily numerous among you who are those who would falsely accuse others of an unchastity. But you who are thus wrong deem it not a bad thing for you for you nay it is good for you. Osba um, is a number of people. I mean, uh, how many people, some, you know, in, in said 40, at least 40 people would be Osma. Some said at least 20 people. But what's important here is that, that we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that those who engaged in this behavior were not singular individuals. So the narratives that tell us that it was three people, a man and his wife and Hassan ibn Thabit, or, and it, that's not defensible. It was clear that from not just the Quran, but from counter narratives that and that is why I don't believe that, part of the reason that I don't believe the, the reports that the Prophet ﷺ flogged anyone for hadith on if, because we know that it was a sizable number of people. Whether, as Muhammad Asad says, that they were numerous among you, I, I don't know if Osba can be translated as numerous. Um, Osba can, can, be, can be translated as a significant number, as a significant number of you have engaged in this behavior. And لا تحسبوه شرا لكم بل هو خير لكم It is exactly the point I was making about how an experiential point can be used for moral elucidation. Yes, it was painful for Aisha, for one. Yes, it was painful for Abu Bakr and Aisha's mother. Yes, it was painful for the Prophet 
yes, it revealed, to put it, put it mildly, uh, an unfortunate side to um, what human beings are capable of doing, even with the presence, so you can imagine if it wasn't the presence of the Prophet amongst them. But this is precisely the way that Allah alerts us that learn from this. This is, this is not just uh, an incident about Aisha or about the Prophet or even about the people who lived at the time or this particular society, but it is a much larger point. Um, and of course, the, the subtlety that you always find in the Quran, when all is said and done, accountability is individual. Those who engaged in the behavior are find that they, they, they will not going to be able to cite the misbehavior of others as an excuse for their own misbehavior. And this remark, verse 12, would say, the translation, why do you not, um, this is Muhammad S. again, oh, why do not the believing men and women, whenever such a rumor is heard, think the best of one another and say, this is an obvious falsehood. The language here is beautifully subtle and eloquent. It's like saying, if only it's what you should have done, what would have been becoming of you, what would have been the morally upright behavior, is that, and the expression here is remarkable, that you would have thought well of yourselves not thought well of each other, but it is as if, which the Quran constantly emphasize, emphasizes, that you either rise morally together or you sink morally together. That you have a choice. You can think the worst, of yourselves, you can think of yourselves as capable of being the worst you are or being the best you are. And it's precisely like the prototypes of hadith that I mentioned earlier, where you say, well, you know, Aisha is better than, than me, or Safwan is better than you, and so, you know, it, if we wouldn't have done it, then they wouldn't have done it. It captures well verse 12 that what should have happened 
is those of you, and again, and Allah is not talking about the hypocrites, but those of you who are in fact sincere believers, that you said we can give way to our imagination. In Islamic language, give way to shaitan and think the worst. But we make the choice not to think the worst and not to give in to that impulse. And notice 13. Now, um, again, uh, Muhammad Asad, uh, why do they not demand of the accusers that they produce four witnesses to prove their allegation? For if they do not produce such witnesses, it is those accusers who are in the sight of God are liars indeed. Okay. Laula and Jao Alehi be Arbati Shuhada. It's not why, uh, how did he put it? Why do not believe, uh, no, um, why do they not demand? It is like saying, Okay, Allah could have said that bring four witnesses or keep silent. But Allah goes a step further here to make the failure of process a failure in the ultimate truth. And this is a point that, again, we should not simply overlook. What Allah is saying is, either you bring four witnesses, or, as far as Allah is concerned, you are lying. Well, you posit this, and you think, well, what if I bring three witnesses, but Allah is saying, bring four witnesses, or as far as Allah is concerned, you're lying. And again, I could be the only witness, and Allah knows that I'm saying the truth. But Allah here is saying, bring four witnesses, or as far as Allah is concerned, you're lying. And you pause and you say, why this very interesting construction? Why would Allah make the truth of the thing contingent on the process of the thing? Why would the failure of evidence then basically Allah says, regardless of whether you're telling the truth or not, I will count this as a lie. This seemingly minor point is a huge leap in jurisprudential thinking. One of the issues in legal history and cultures of law is whether a judge who has direct knowledge of a thing can rule, pair that direct knowledge, or is the judge bound by the 
rules of evidence. So I could be sitting as a judge and I could have direct knowledge. I can take judicial notice of whether you are guilty or not because let's say I as a judge saw you commit the act. But the evidence could be lacking in what in legal sociology we often in in often called um, folk folk systems of law from folklore is that the rules of evidence are not codified and not set in stone and therefore negotiable. And it takes legal sociology and legal history quite a while to get to the point where you say you don't have justice unless the rules are the same for everyone. So even if the judge has direct knowledge, a judge may not rely on direct judicial knowledge but must rely on the rules of the process for adjudication. It is remarkable that you find it in the Quran and because of that, Islamic law, centuries before it became a common feature in legal systems and rule of law systems, in Islamic law, Muslim jurists were, because of the Quran, had from from the very beginning, uh, early centuries of Islamic law, said that a judge may not rule based on judicial knowledge, that a judge is bound by the rule of evidence. That civilizational leap came from the Quran. And that Allah, I mean, if Allah, Allah's self, God's self, is saying I will consider whether you are saying the truth or not, depending on whether you comply with the rules of evidence or not, then a priori, it applies all the much more so to human beings. You know, the and it is intentionally phrased here. You notice that it is not the Quran when it wants, when it wants to talk about individuals, it talks about individuals. But here it is intentionally not phrased in terms of, well, Allah knows that Aisha is innocent. And so that is why Allah wants the four new witnesses. But that either you comply with this or as far as Allah is concerned, then you effectively, the offense you've committed is greater than the truth of the thing. Okay. And then, and precisely this point, وَلَوْ لَفَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْأَخِرَةِ 
لمسكم فيما افضتم فيه عذاب عظيم that so we understand when Allah says um, this 14 and were it not for God's favor upon you and God's grace in this world and in the life to come awesome suffering would indeed have inflicted you in result of all the comedy in which you indulge when you take up uh, it goes on okay I'll come to that but great suffering in the hereafter we understand that if it hasn't been for God's mercy in alerting you that this is immoral conduct but when Allah says great suffering in the here now this is the 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 parts where you see Allah where we understand the significance of the centrality of Ayatul Nur here in that you don't understand you might think that this is just about gossip but this is not just about gossip this is about the the fabric of your society this is about your solidarity as a society this is about whether you think well of one another because if any moral experiment in the universe will fail if people consistently fail to give each other the benefit of doubt there is no human endeavor free of doubt if I go to a doctor I wasn't there when this doctor went to medical school I wasn't there when this doctor did the residency I wasn't there when this doctor deals with their colleagues or what I have to rely on benefit of doubt it is that reliance that enables me to go to a doctor listen to what the doctor says and then go home and then in fact spend considerable amount of money based on whatever the diagnosis and the treatment that the doctor said human society is constantly functioning no part of human endeavor is free of doubt it is our ability to have what in law we call good faith dealing to rely on good faith if you can't rely on good faith there will be an utter collapse that is why a human being listen to this carefully a human being who for whatever reasons sometimes a human being thinks you know they're smarter than everyone or they they're the ultimate skeptic or they're you know they have inferiority complexes or whatever but a human being who is incapable 
of trusting or thinking well of others or giving the benefit of doubt is a failed moral project. That human being will have failed relations within the family, will probably have a failed marriage, will probably have a failed career, will probably have a failed everything. The balance and mizan, the ability to exercise while you extend benefit of doubt, but have the wisdom to know when you should sagaciously withhold benefit of doubt is what it's all about. That, that's, that's, you know, all the, the, the intelligent moral philosophizing is often exactly about that. It's like, while we need good faith dealing, we need trust for things to work. What would the intelligent human being, when is it appropriate to withhold that trust? One of the things that happens, you know, you hear a lot about decolonization and so on. One of the things that sociology if you read in the in, in the in sociology and cultural studies, you discover something amazing in that societies that advanced and colonized the rest of the world functioned on a healthy system of benefit of doubt and good faith dealing. That is precisely why in these societies, the measure, the barometer of corruption is manageable. There's not very high corruption because one of the reasons that corruption seeps into society is that you don't trust. You you don't trust tomorrow. You don't trust your bosses. You don't trust society. You don't trust the law. So you want to make yourself safe. So you, you, you take shortcuts and you say, I don't care whether this, what the ripple effects of this decision is, I have to make myself secure. Societies that were colonized not only suffered from lack of good faith dealing within these societies, but the colonizer further exploited the barometer of trust in the society. In other words, divided and conquered. Disseminated a great deal of distrust within the societies they're colonized. Uh, I mean, and we know now from a lot of cultural studies that, you know, the, the way you do that is that you strike a deal with one tribe and you give them very favorable terms and then control the flow of information as to what would, why is it that you treat this tribe with such favorable terms and at the same time, it, it, you never allow the tribes to come together to deal with you as one. 
but you deal with each faction, each group separately. So you say, I refuse to talk to you, all of you together, but I will talk to you separately. This is exactly what the Israelis did with the Palestinians, for instance. I will exclude this group, I will exclude that group, I will exclude this group, I will exclude that group, but I will only talk to this group. Well, you've won. You've, you've broken, you're not making peace with the Palestinian people, you are negotiating with the Palestinian people, you are negotiating with a single Palestinian front that spells lack of good faith trust for the rest of Palestinians forever. Colonial studies, cultural studies, sociology, I mean, if again, that's why you need to be anchored in the epistemology of your age. You can't just read history. Now, so, this is when Allah comes and says that Allah saved you from great suffering on this earth. This is why, and, and especially in the context of the Surah An-Nur, when Allah talks about light, it is as if Allah say, understand what it takes to have light in your society, in your community. It, I, I hope that you can share, you know, my, my brain is blown. My mind was blown when I saw this. I, I hope that you are similarly blown by it because what I see how Allah so directly and so simply tells us about the critical importance of what it took, you know, took tens and tens and tens of books for me to learn later on. And I saw it so simply affirmed here in the Quran, it's, it's mind-boggling. And that is why it says, if you would have thought well of yourself, quite simply, without that, you have no solidarity. And if you think you're going to be able to achieve anything in terms of an actual moral mission, if you can't honor one another, and this I wanna emphasize this because this will become core, if you can't honor one another, if you can't dignify one another. Okay. And this again is, is reaffirmed. Uh, 16 and 17. Uh, 15. Uh, 15. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, I skipped 15. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. I did skip 15. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. I did skip 15. 
you put it the the well first let's do the translation and then I'll come to it. When you take up with your tongues, uttering with your mouth something of which you have no knowledge, and deeming it a light matter, whereas in the sight of God it is an awful thing. We can sit here and I can go through the hadith from the Prophet for an hour that talks about how one's tongue human's tongue can plummet them in the depth of hell. Speech matters. And this is one of the, again, a society that doesn't understand the importance of what you utter, what you express, is society is a society that cannot build good faith and cannot build dignity. That you might it it is as simple as well, you know, I'm not saying anything because it's subhanAllah, I mean when you delve into the narratives, you find these characters that are sort of remind you of when I, I'm not saying anything. All I'm saying is well if I was there I would have waited until the army I mean after all it, how long would it have been before they would have noticed that Aisha is not there and they would have come back to her. What, you know, oh, I would rather risk the danger of nightfall because one of the things that Aisha says is that, well, I fear the fall of night or I fear that the night would come. Oh, I would have risked nightfall and and she's, what, she's young if, uh, the, one of the reports actually sort of funny says, She's young. If a mountain lion, if a, if a lion would have appeared, she could, if she would have ran, she would have um, outrun the lion. A again, you know, whether this is actually it was said or that was, you know, sort of a, uh, a medieval flourish, Allahu Alam. But, um, but the, the narratives, you can imagine fully that where you are, spreading this toxic brew without owning the toxic brew, which human beings do very well, and which human beings, especially when human beings don't have a moral project, especially when human beings don't feel their own value, because it is often about your own value, not the value of others that you know you have time and you have energy to engage in this type the, the more empty-headed you are and empty-hearted the more you engage in gossip this type of gossip and note that allah says 
that those who don't bring four witnesses, those are the lying people with Allah. So when Allah comes and says that you speak of it and you think it is a small matter, but as far as Allah is concerned, it is a very grave matter. You pause and you say, okay, so what is the grave matter here? And if you read what Surah Al-Nur says, the grave matter is to, in fact, speak of the accusation without sticking to the rules of, and in fact, I mean, at this point, four witnesses, it's not just that you have four witnesses. But the four witnesses that you have would be presented, would be would testify, and there would actually be a conviction. So if you wanted to be on the safe side and not be called a liar by God, you wouldn't speak about people's honor or matters that relate to people's honor and dignity without a legal process that establishes guilt. And that's quite a standard because it's, it's, it's like saying, be very conscientious about what you say. Talk is not cheap. As far as God is concerned, talk is a very serious responsibility. It's, it's like Hamid al-Ghazali said, it is teaching this early community the responsibility of the word. Now think of all the modern civilizations that we are aware of, modern civilizations built on the communicated word. Because modern civilizations in which technology is written and technology is transmitted, and knowledge is written and knowledge is transmitted. Every civilization since the age of writing rises and falls with the responsibility of the word. And so when you find this in Surah An-Nur, it is not just about, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not like some people understood it that, oh, well, you know, Surah An-Nur is really just talking about gossip and then you have this, this amazing ayah about God's light. It is all interconnected without the responsibility of the word, what happens to God's light? How can we, in fact, affirm and disseminate and perpetuate God's light? This is a sad commentary, but, you know, it is known, I, I don't know if it's among Muslims all over the world or if it's just Arab society. But it is known that Arabs 
are notoriously not trustworthy when it comes to um, making appointments. You know, it, it is just... Uh, one of the shayukh, um well, he's a good friend, but yeah, I mean, it was the regular was in Egypt the regular was that I would wait for him if I if he comes within the hour of the time that he's given me you know I used to congratulate him on being timely uh, the norm was two three hours after the time is given me that was um, but that if you grew up in Arab society that's just the way it is um, Sadly, but that is a lack of responsibility of the word. That if you say, otherwise you cannot build a good faith society and you cannot build a society based on the benefit of the doubt. Okay. And then, um, yeah. This is now 16, which I, okay. And once again, uh, this is Muhammad as a translator. Why do you not say whenever you hear such a rumor, it does not behove us to speak of this? Although who art limitless in thy glory, this is an awesome calumny. A God admonishes you hereby, lest you ever revert to the like of the sin, if you are truly believers. For God makes God's messages clear unto you, and God is all-knowing and wise. Um, okay. Again, it, it, it is... How does he translate them all the way? It says, uh, why do you not? It's not why do you not. It's It's... It's like you should have, if only. But it it for it, it that type of if only carries the meaning of an admonition of an imperative. Laula What you should have done is once you hear this, you would have said, "We cannot indulge." In this type of talk, the, the, that you know the limits, and as we will see, you know the limits for honoring each other's dignity and privacy. Because that is a central theme in Surah An-Nur. Allah admonishes you. That you, that you would ever repeat this behavior if you are truly believers. Uh, that Allah, uh, whenever, again, whenever the, the immoral lesson is crowned with an admonition, admonition that Allah is truly the teacher, it is as if Allah, it's as if a teacher is basically telling you, pay attention, because this is an important lesson. So, would, this is a classic Quranic style. You have 
the lesson and then a reminder that that this lesson is critically important coming from a critically important source. Allah the most wise and most knowing and so on. Okay. Then we come to 19. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُحِبُّونَ أَنْ تَشِيعَ الْفَاحِشَةُ فِي الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ رَؤُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ So, um, this is 19 and 20. So, it says, this is Muhammad Asad, Verily, as for those who like to hear foul slander, spread against any of those who have attained to faith. Grievous suffering awaits them in the world and in the life to come, for God knows the full truth, whereas you know it not. And were it not for God's favor upon you, and God's grace, and that God is compassionate, a dispenser of grace. Muhammad Asad translated Fahisha here as slander. But as I said, Fahisha is immoral conduct. And if you remember from Surah An-Nisa, Fahisha is not just immoral conduct, but it is sexual impropriety. And the, the, the significance here is, as I noted, that those who claimed that they are speaking out because they have to put an, you know, stand firm against the hanky-panky that it might be going on in Medina, in Medinian society, and especially, you know, such a young um, woman. And, of course, you know, I, it is, it is significant that she is the daughter of Abu Bakr Siddiq. It is, and, and if I, if we would have a time machine and go back, those who dare not criticize the Prophet or criticize Abu Bakr, that's the way people express their rather cowardly protests is to take it out on those who are indirectly um, because it's it's ultimately it's you know what it's it's directed at the prophet's household so that Allah then comes and says no the fahisha is the gossip it is not just the zina. Zina is fahisha. But the gossip about zina and the... But what is gossip about zina fundamentally about? It is about people's dignity and people's privacy. 
that the fact that you take someone's reputation in the mud and fail to honor one another's dignity, that is ifahisha. And the tables are turned and this point was clearly noticed by the recipients of the Quran at the time that Allah calls the failure to bring witnesses a lie with Allah that you are lying as far as Allah is concerned for failing to adhere to the process and that Allah calls the, this act, the, the slander, ifahisha, obviously in the same way that zina itself is fahisha. Okay. And then this point is further laid out. I mean, what is sort of the, the what you would logically, if you understand the moral universe of the Quran, that when you are going, when you are, uh, uh, what is the expression I'm looking for? When you are taking one another down, when you are violating one another's honor, when you are violating one another's dignity and privacy, what is that? It is shaitan. What shaitan wants. So, ya shaitan. These are the footsteps of the shaitan. And when you do that, you are in fact following in the foot. And understand that what shaitan is about, ya'muru munkar, that it is not just that shaitan is responsible for zina, or that shaitan entices people to commit zina, sexual impropriety, or you know, whether it is the full-fledged jinnah or things short of, but that when you fail to honor one another, when you fail to dignify one another, and you fail to respect one another, that is also from shaitan, and that's fahsha and munkar. And then this this uh, expression I want to pause it for a second. وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ مَا ذَكَّ مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ أَبَدًا وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يُذَكِّ مَا يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ So, let's see how Muhammad translates this. So, all you who have attained to face, follow not Satan's footsteps. For he who follows Satan's footsteps will find that, behold, he enjoins but deeds of abomination and that all that runs counter to reason. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to see what he translated as runs counter to reason. Well, there is a footnote there, but... Oh, Munkar. Okay, yeah, okay, I get it. But so Muhammad Asad is translating Munkar as counter to reason. Okay, reasonable. And were it not for God's favor upon you and God's grace, not one of you would ever have... Oh, he translates it as remain pure. Okay. That uh, not one of you would have ever remained pure. For thus it is, it is God who causes whomever God wills to grow in purity. And for God is all hearing, all knowing. It's a reasonable interpretation of Maza Kaminkum min Ahadin Abada. Um, reasonable interpretation, but okay. Taskiyat is when you not necessarily purify something. But when you claim or you commend or you promote something as of elevated status, which could include purity. So one of the, for instance, we say, La uzaki Ahad Allah that it is would not be for me to tell Allah who is commendable or not commendable because Allah knows. Or it is not it is it is inappropriate that I would pretend that I am in, in a position to decide who has what status with God. Only God knows the true status of people. So when you say, لا أزكي أحد على الله, that's what I mean. But here, notice that it is Allah who says that, note, that if it hasn't been for Allah's fadl, and Allah's Rahmah. Ma zakka minkum min ahadin abada. None of you would, in fact, be in a position to to either, in truth or in perception. To be in an elevated moral status with Allah. It is like Allah is saying. It is it's sort of a, 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 a significant moral point. It is Allah telling us. I know that the temptation 
is for you to think of yourself and say, well, I wouldn't do X or I wouldn't do Y. Human beings are not very good at honestly putting themselves in other people's place. It is easy for one to say, well, if it was me, I wouldn't say X, Y, and Z. I wouldn't say this or that. I wouldn't do this and that. And it is even tempting that you would imagine yourself because remember, according to the narratives we have, is that some of the people who indulged in this were people who were people who went through persecution in Mecca, who did the hijrah with the Prophet people who even fought in Badr, and people who fought in Uhud and stood their ground, didn't even run. Some did run, but I mean, some of the people involved in this debacle, but, but in other words, the temptation is there to say, well, you know, I am of the moral position to be able to talk about others' people's behavior whether it was appropriate or inappropriate in a situation like this. Imagine how easy it is for us human beings to imagine, to put yourself in some other person's shoes and to actually be empathetic is a gift from Allah. Empathy is a gift from Allah. It's a gift because it allow it helps you take a, be a moral human being, but that gift was not given to everyone. That that sort of um, special elixir that helps morality was not gifted to everyone. It, some people have more empathy than others. Well, the people who have less empathy need to work harder because they were just denied the elixir. It doesn't mean that they sit there and say, well, God didn't give me empathy, so what did I, you know, it's not my fault. No, you work harder. To what? To, to empathize, to put yourself in the shoes of others and to understand things from their perspective. So Allah is saying, yeah, Allah knows with who was involved. Allah knows all the people who were involved. And that some of you, especially those who, you know, did the hijrah and fought in Badr and fought on Ahud, you know, thought, well, I'm just talking about a kid. And all I'm saying is that she acted inappropriately. What's the big deal? No. Know your place. Because whatever moral status you believe you have, it is actually Allah. It is due to Allah. Because if Allah would put the screws on you, would hold you to real ethical standard, all of you would fail. 
a remarkably, astoundingly humbling statement. So when you read Hassan ibn Thabit, his famous poem, Apologizing to Aisha, is that when he when he heard this ayah and he started crying, and I wish I could remember his famous poem now, but I used to have it memorized, but now I forgot it. Um, when he, the poem here where he apologized to Aisha, that, oh my God, you know, if, 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 don't get that, that creeping arrogance that says, well, you know, I've been with the Prophet for 10 years, and I did the Hijrah with the Prophet, and, you know, I fought in Bad, and I fought in Uhud, and I've been there all along. So, you know, uh, it can't be that God would criticize me. No. Inappropriate behavior is inappropriate behavior, regardless of who you, what you think your status and your position is. Again, I often say this. There are, it is in these micro-discourses that you see the real proof that the author of this book could not have been human. This is not a way a human being would talk to his colleagues and to his trusted friends and the ones he relies on. I mean, and, and even the, the, the implication well, if God is speaking so resolutely about how, who is wrong and who is right, as you find in some of the, um, in, in the, uh, um, um, what's it say, Ibn Abi Shayba, and both, Abdul Razak and Ibn Abi Shayba both, that they have these narratives where say, where I mean, it's in some of the versions it's attributed to Munafiqun, other versions it's just attributed to someone puzzling, where someone says, "Oh, uh, Allah was truly harsh on the Prophet in in, in this revelation." It's a it's a naughty question. Do you do you get the the import? It's like saying, "Well, if Allah, you know." says right and wrong was so clear so why didn't the prophet come to defense of Aisha I mean it's like why blame us even the prophet didn't get it right um it, it this this uh, riwayat didn't make it in uh, Bukhari and Muslim and so on but um you know Allah Adam, whether they're historical or not there is a tinge of truth that the way history preserves to us the position of the Prophet the strength of Surah An-Nur and its, its strong stand, um, I, I want to say it politely, but it's, If the Prophet 
was the author of the Quran worried about flattering himself or making himself look good? Well, this is not what you say. You see what I'm saying? I mean, this is a, this is a, and it, it is, it is, yes, it's true. It, it, Surah Al-Nur doesn't talk like it's a, it's a, it's just about Aisha, but it is coming in and saying, all of you, all of you should have known better. It is not just a matter of, you know, maintaining your silence and, you know, saying, you know, or just maintaining your silence. It's like all of you should have known better. These are the things that if you are one of those people that, you know, is not sure of, or, or you you have pangs of doubts. If you truly learn the Quran, not an iota of doubt would remain in your heart. Who, the author of this book doesn't talk like all the human authors that we are aware of. Okay. So it comes in this humbling message, you know, don't, don't go around saying, oh, well, you know, I, I wasn't as bad as other. The other thing is, is that, you know, some of you say, well, I wasn't as bad as this person. Well, I didn't. Listen, you know, know your place because it is, it, it is Allah's mercy that saves you from your own failures and your own faults and have that humility as core to the whole project of honoring one another and dignifying one another and respecting one another as we will see. Okay. Now, this humbling message is very, very critical to the ayah that follows. And one of the most remarkable remarkable parts of the Quranic revelation. So, وَلَا يَأْتَلِي أُولِي الْفَضْلِ مِنْكُمْ وَالسَّعَى أَنْ يُؤْتِي أُولِي الْقُرْبَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالْيَعْفُ وَالْيَصْفَحُ أَلَا تُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ 22. So, say, After saying, don't think, when you know the context, when Allah is saying, don't think any of you that your position or your stature, what happened is that one of, I already mentioned Mustah, who's, um, Mustah bin Athasa was one of the people who insisted or was very, him and his wife both were very critical of Aisha. And 
Mistah was a relative of Abu Bakr. And he was poor. And so poor that since he migrated from Mecca to Medina, Abu Bakr gave him a regular stipend. But when this incident happened, now, when you look at, when you research the personality of Musbah and Mustah and his wife, um, both of them, but I mean, according to the, it seems like his wife was specially you know the type that, um, especially his wife, um, there she's bitter about her position in life. Like you know that they migrated, they they lived in a uh, what seems like a shack, effectively that was donated to them by one of the Ansar. Uh, it's a small, cramped place. Uh, Mustah, although he's related to Abu Bakr, he's very destitute. He lives off odd, jo odd jobs that he does here and there. Um, uh, but the money he gets from Abu Bakr is, is you know, the anchor of his livelihood. And his wife is... You know, in light of what happened with Badr, in light with what happened with Uhud, in light of what happened with Banu Nadir, uh, it, she's constantly saying, why aren't we getting more? You know, do, doesn't the Prophet see the, the, the poverty we're in? The, the, why doesn't Abu Bakr help us more? I mean, you know, and you get some you know interesting stories about why is he helping, especially because Abu Bakr helped a lot of people, why is he helping poor people who are Ansar, who are native Medinians, instead of fellow Muhajirun? And even, you know, he's helping foreigners instead of helping his own relatives. I mean, what is this? Why, instead, I heard he gave this and this family this and that and that. You know, instead of helping these people, why not helping us? Although I suspect, just from the way you read history, is that this entered into the role that Mustah and his wife play when they pounced on the Aisha story. You know how petty, jealous, unhappy people, uh, you know, they, they, they find an opportunity and they, because... Although he knew that this really hurt Abu Bakr and really hurt his wife and really hurt Aisha and really hurt the Prophet Mustah just kept going and insisting on it until the revelation of Surah Al-Nur. And when the first part of Surah Al-Nur is revealed 
And immediately Abu Bakr swears after this that I will not help Mustah and his wife with a single dime from here on outwards. They slandered my daughter. They slandered my the, the Prophet they dishonored my entire family, and after that, they still expect to receive a stipend from me? Forget it. And the Quran comes and humbles Abu Bakr and orders him, according to the Prophet, who tells Abu Bakr that this is precisely what it means, that no don't you wouldn't you love for Allah to forgive your faults and Abu Bakr hears this and says indeed I would love for Allah to forgive my faults and reneges or goes back on his promise never to help Mustafa and restores the stipend now Unfortunately, we tell stories like this as if we're telling, you know, little children fairy tales. Stop and ponder. Stop and ponder. Any one of us in Abu Bakr's position, I think, would have similarly said, I am not helping these people with a dime. They want to slander me, slander my family, and, and continue receiving my money? Why would Allah come to a man like Abu Bakr and say, don't think so highly of yourself. Wouldn't you like Allah to forgive you? Go back and help Mustah, despite what Mustah did. I mean, what is the moral lesson being conveyed? And again, for those Muslims who are influenced by Islamophobia in our day and age, people think, use your brain. If your book was from any source but a divine source, the prophet who just had his wife maligned, who just was embarrassed by the entire incident, by the Quran coming and saying, you know what? You shouldn't have even entertained this talk. Goes and says to his close, his, his, the, the father of his wife, oh no, you should forgive Mustah and, and restore payment. Use your brain. You know, all, all these, uh, if, if, you know, I, it just, it, it really irks me when I see these people who call themselves ex-Muslims and they act so smart and so knowledgeable and so intelligent because they just don't realize how ignorant they are. I mean, it is like, like you, you, you're, you're watching a three-year-old, you know, theorize to you about how a car works, and you're just listening to them, and you know, and you just, uh, anyway. Um, what is the what is the moral point being registered here, and why? 
yeah, Allah could say, well, Mustah deserves it. Well, he definitely deserved it. I mean, him and his wife, I mean, what type of behavior is that? But that is not the point. The point is that this society, if it is going to learn to heal its wounds and function as one and nurture the benefit of doubt and good faith dealing, it cannot stumble over old injuries. It cannot say, if we get into this realm of, yes, but you did to me X, Y, Z, but you did this, but I did this, but you did this, we're not going to move forward. And it is, it is like saying, in, in, a, in a symbol, you could sit there and say, and, and posit how hurt you are. But once Allah is part of the equation, and once you think that my reward is with Allah, not with you, then get over yourself. Then move on. Allah is not interested in hearing about how hurt you are. There's no space for that. Move on. This is why this is called Surah Al-Nur. If you sit and you think about everything you're hearing, you are hearing about how light is spreading through the various channels to remove darkness. What time is it? Is it Maghrib or really? Mm-hmm. Oh. 9:20. Okay, let's let's uh, let's stop to pray Maghrib, and oh. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go. Till, okay, so let's not pray Maghrib because we have. So what, what we'll do is we'll go till ten, and then we'll pray Maghrib. We'll, we'll then we'll finish the halakha and pray Maghrib at ten. Um, so, but so we'll, we'll go for another half hour, inshallah. Is that okay? Um, and then we'll we'll stop and then we'll pray Maghrib. But, but let's take a two minute break. Uh, Um, yeah, the the other thing I, I should also mention is that there are reports that it wasn't just Abu Bakr um, who swore to cut off Mistah, but there were others as well. I don't remember the names, but um, there were there were reportedly others who as you know who similarly said okay we're, we're not going to help no longer help the people we used to help who were involved in hadith al-ifq um, okay and note 
There is a, a, a hadith attributed to the Prophet um, which says, um, it's a very, a very short, it says, Al-Mu'min Tughafun. What it means is that two-thirds of the moral character of a true believer is to overlook um, overlook offenses, to not stop, and not just Tagaful here doesn't just mean to overlook being offended, but also to um, make excuses for people, to yeah to to take to resort to the benefit of the doubt, and that and if if any of you have ever gone through um, a Sufi path, one of the core things that you're, you're taught in, in that path is that y your heart cannot um, attain enlightenment in any way unless your heart um, abandons vehemence and rancor and gripes that that basically all these things you know they might not ever do anything to the people that you're upset with or angry with or whatever but they're all directed against the self they're, they're, they're all eat away at you. Um, okay. Okay, and then notice that at the same time that Allah says, reminds us that that don't you wouldn't you forgive others so that Allah would forgive you. But then in the very next ayah, lest people take that as somehow a, uh, a as minimizing the gravity of the offense that was being committed. It's Allah comes and, and underscores. No, th th this forgiveness is despite the gravity of the offense. So, that at this point, Allah says, and those who slander, and let's see how Muhammad Asa translates the uh, 23. That those who, say, those who falsely, uh, 
those who slander and accuse chaste women, Muhammad Asad says, who may have been unthinkingly careless, but have remained true to their face, shall be rejected from God's grace in this world as well as the life to come. Uh, an awesome suffering awaits them on the day when their own tongues and hands and feet will bear witness against them by recalling all that they did. And muhassanat is those who are entitled to the presumption of chastity. Okay. Al-ghafilat is what he translates as um, unthinkingly careless. Al-ghafilat could mean those who were unthinkingly careless, but I don't think it necessarily means that. Al-ghafilat could basically means those who are... Um, Ha, they are, it's, it's another way of saying an innocent person. In, in other words, someone who is otherwise just going about minding their own business and they find themselves being um, slandered. So, Luaino, they are cursed in this world and the hereafter. And Allah reminds us that was what we've seen, the refrain that is repeated several times in the Quran, that the day when, in fact, your whatever you've utilized, everything will testify against you. Your 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 body itself will bear witness against you, and as I said before, that in my view, and go back to the past halakhas, that you will in fact see, in one form or another, your misdeeds. It, you know, in in some form. You will, you will in fact see the truth of the offenses that your body committed. Okay. يَوْمَ إِذْ يُوَفِّيُمُ اللَّهُ دِينَوْمُ الْحَقِّ وَيَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الْحَقُّ الْمُبِينَ So this is 25. I think this one can just... On that day, God will pay them in their full, their just due. And they will come to know that God alone is the ultimate truth manifest and manifesting the true nature of all that has ever been done. Uh, I like the way Muhammad Azza translates this ayah because it is not just that, that they will receive their due, but that the very truth of God, the very truth of the light, is that it will shine light upon the truth of your deeds. That by the very nature of the truth of divinity, 
is the ultimate is that truth will manifest itself so it's like saying the very nature of light is that it manifests things the very nature of light is that it pushes back darkness and the very nature of now when there is nothing but God's light is that the truth of things will be revealed. And this is core to Ayat nur as we will see. Okay. الخبيثات للخبيثين والخبيثون للخبيثات والطيبات للطيبين والطيبون للطيبات أولئك مبرؤون مما يقولون لهم مغفرة ورزق كريم So this is now 26 Muhammad Asad says in the nature of things corrupt women are for corrupt men and corrupt men for corrupt women just as good women are for good men and good men for good women. Since God is aware that, that these are innocent of all the evil tongues may impute to them, forgiveness of sins shall be theirs and a most excellent sustenance. So, There is, note that this, this same, we've encountered this mode earlier in the surah, particularly ayah number two, right? But here, in this context, it serves a slightly different emphasis. Part of what the, that experience demonstrated or manifested was something that is familiar to us in human society, is that people engage in unbecoming conduct but believe that this doesn't reflect their moral quality. So people would say that precisely like Abu Bakr's relatives, for instance, and his wife, um, that, okay, yeah, well, I talked... I indulged in this hadith, but, um, okay, so I was wrong. Okay, stuck for Allah. But that doesn't mean that I am a bad person. And Allah comes and says, you are, if it, one is that, Hopes is hopes, tiba is tiba. And here the, the, the words matter because al-khabis is 
something that is foul and known to be through a correct moral sense to be foul. And a tayyib is what is good. So, and it is also another word for kindness. So it is what we would innately know to be good. And Allah Kamsa says, you've engaged in this behavior. You are this behavior. That, you know, that playing of games of, well, you know, I do one thing, but I believe, I declare myself to be another, doesn't work with God. It's not going to, it's not going to work. You are what you do. You are what you practice. And and Allah knows that those who are innocent are innocent, regardless of what people said about them. So again, it is simply putting dots where they belong. There is a narrative about this Ayah 23 um, that um, one of the things among the, 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 the things that Madinian society labored um, under is that when women would join, would convert to Islam and join the Prophet in Medina, um, in other words, a woman a woman would become a, a muhajira, that the Meccans and in some reports also the hypocrites would spread rumors that that in fact the reason she migrated is and, and here the, the the narratives are very fascinating because they say some narratives say that they you know that they would say that the reason she migrated is oh she just fell in love with some guy in Medina and she's basically abandoning her husband and her family to, to go join her lover. Or, um, oh, you know, she's just a loose woman and she wants to go in Medina and, um, you know, be promiscuous because the women of Medina are known to be more liberal than the, the women of Mecca. Um, other narratives that she um, uh, uh, she left, uh, you know, she says it's because she be converted to Islam, but it is just an excuse for, and they would malign her reputation. And this, according to these narratives, weighed on the, 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 the woman who, the muhajirat, who had, come to Mecca knowing that you know the the, um, the the families that they left behind in Mecca uh, are now you know had heard all these awful rumors about them and you know and so on and so forth 
And uh, this area, according to these narratives, were, were, came to confirm to them that, to, or to assure them, that Allah knows who is a Khabith and who's a Tayyip. And you know, the, the world talking about you doesn't change the reality of what Allah knows. Whether that was an occasion for a revelation, I doubt. I mean, the, the context of the ayah. Um, but whether it clearly applies to the situation, which I think described the historical reality, yes, it does. Or at least clearly, the people who received Surah An-Nur clearly understood this ayah as to also apply to this situation. In, I, in other words, the, the, the maligning of the reputation of al-Muhajirat. Um, okay, what time is it? Okay, close. Okay, now Surat al-Nur is going to shift to talking about the rules of privacy which is all interconnected and this is now um, verse 27 what you know let's let's start that with Tuesday so that we don't break the the, the topic in, in the middle um, okay so let's stop here Alhamdulillah. Remember, we stopped at verse 27. So we actually made some progress, but you know. Did you rush? No. Okay, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> did, I, did I seem to rush? No, Alhamdulillah. I just okay. wanted to make sure. Okay. So you testified to the truth and, you know, just asking me. <laughs> alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Thank you. This has really I've been um, such a stunning journey. Um, and, you know, so interesting. I mean, I guess I wanted to say, I, this is something I, I wrote a little bit about my in, in my weekly email, is that it's it's like, I mean, we've seen throughout this whole journey that the things that we cover are really amplified by what's happening in, like, outside of the Holocaust, too. Um, and at the end of last uh, Holocaust session, you had said something about how, you know, it's interesting about how people were sort of freaking out about like my Jordan Peterson talk and Hamza Yusuf because it's like, oh, why didn't yeah. you, you know, rein this woman in and she's like going off or whatever. Yeah, well, why didn't I rein my <laughs> wife in and, you know, put her in her place and prevent stuff. her from saying all these... Listen, I have no control over my wife. <laughs> I mean, she might have control over me. That's a possibility. Not true. But I, I have no control over my wife and I don't even aspire to have control over my wife. Uh... You know, I just pray for her. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, so, you know, and continuing on, what I think was so fascinating, because I actually didn't really want to say anything more about this, but then this that jumped out through this whole halakha, is, you know, I mean, people have continued, you know, after the fact, um, obviously, you know, they, they've been throwing a lot of really nasty comments on YouTube and whatever, um, because of all the things that I brought up there, because, you know, it's like, that's how social media is. But when we talk today about this idea of giving people the benefit of the doubt 
share, you know, spreading light, you know, taking the stand because so many of the comments is, oh, how dare you? Don't you know you're supposed to do whatever as if someone is speaking to me towards, you know, pointing to a, a moral high ground. And it's, it's like, you know, happy to tear someone down um, and not give someone necessarily either the benefit of the doubt or spread light or, you know, it's like that, what you said about the morality of even how you call someone to task, you know, or, or how you communicate and how do we as a community come together when we're doing that as opposed to actually being better and, and banding together to be better. And that was very striking to me too, because that's such a lesson for our time. It's like we oftentimes expect sort of the worst reaction from fellow Muslims, which is what this surah seems to be pointing out very clearly is if you're going to spread light, you know, one, you, you should think better of yourselves as, as, as a community. And so I felt like, wow, again, you know, this sort of is another lesson um, that we are learning in the halakha and can easily apply to something that's happening with our within our timing and our midst. So um, anyway, alhamdulillah for everything. This was truly stunning. I think so many things that you even like, uh, so many powerful takeaways, like even, you know, you, you are what you do that, you know, or keeping to your word, um, even like keep being on time, um, which, you know, obviously I'm not, we're not, you know, obviously that great at either sometimes, <laughs> but that that's so much a part of keeping your word and honoring your word. And there are just so many things in this particular surah that I feel really hit home um, with just what, you know, who we are and what we know as individuals, as human beings in our time. Um, so it's so powerful and um, thank you so much. Um, I know we were talking about how surah Noor, no one has in the past in, in the tradition approach this in a thematic way it's always been just about the, the the part about light upon light so i'm so excited to continue seeing how this all comes together and and thank you so much i mean it struck me several times as you were sharing with us this really deep insight how blessed and lucky we are to be here receiving it because you've spent so much time investing your life in understanding this and there's no way many of us would ever reach, any of us I think would ever reach this type of understanding without someone that had put in, like, without you putting in all of the time, hard work, research over the last decades to arrive at what you're giving us today. So we, we're, we owe you so much and alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Um, so, and good news. We don't have to wait a week for the next episode. <laughs> we will be back, inshallah, on Tuesday. So um, hope you can join us and um, have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And um, thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Assalamu alaikum.